Open your Bibles with, with me, would you, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. By now, your Bibles probably just fall open there. And if you need a Bible, it's under the seat in front of you, page number 916. 916. Moments before Jesus ascended to heaven, he'd been crucified. He was now in his indestructible resurrection body. Moments before he went up to heaven, he spoke these parting words to his followers. You know them well. They kick off the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Great words. God's long-standing promise of rescue through Jesus has always had that end in mind, the end of the earth. This blessing wasn't intended just for Abraham's kin. It was intended for all the families on earth, for every ethnicity, for every nation. Jesus here lays out that plan in terms that you could plot out on a map in Jerusalem, out in concentric circles like waves moving out from that epicenter. The plan was to go global, to go global. And then we saw in chapter 2 how that happened right on plan. The Holy Spirit came on believers in Jerusalem, and like a mighty rushing wind, like an earthquake no Richter scale could ever register, he shook the epicenter of Jewish worship. The good news of Jesus echoed on the lips of unschooled ordinary men who had been with Jesus, but now those echoes were amplified by his spirit within them. And it reverberated through the temple courts so that thousands of worshipers from the globe were transformed into true followers of Jesus Christ. Many of those new Christians, you'll remember, were Greek-speaking Jews from all over. They came from all over the empire, far from home. They weren't true blue Hebrew-speaking Jews. They were misfits. They were out-of-towners, many of them, so many of them, converted to Christ that the apostles had to scramble to organize care for them. Do you remember that? They scrambled to organize care for them, and that's how Stephen and Philip, two Greek-speaking, brand-new baby believers, come into view in Luke's account. They're two leaders that were chosen for that task. But then you recall last week, Stephen, spirit-filled Stephen, scripture-saturated Stephen, steps up and ticks off the Jewish Sanhedrin. He dares to tell them what they got wrong with worship. He dares to tell them what they got wrong with Jesus, and it gets him killed. A key Christian leader is silenced forever. How tragic. What a setback. But is it? Look at verse 1, 
chapter 8, verse 1, tells us, And there rose on that day, the day Stephen is martyred, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Something in your head should go ding as you hear that read. That's what Jesus said would happen. That's how he said it would go. From Jerusalem into all Judea and Samaria, right on plan. Right on plan. But by persecution? Last week, our pastor helped us to see that Stephen's lengthy story is intended to remind us that this kind of pressure, this kind of pain, yes, persecution, is not an anomaly. It's a normal part of God's perfect plan. Persecution is no impediment to God's plan. It's a propellant. And so today, we get to see how. We get to watch what happens when the good news of Jesus breaks new ground. We get to watch and see what happens when the good news of Jesus breaks new ground. Verse 4, chapter 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. But There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, 
of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The good news of Jesus has just broken new ground, and you got to watch it happen. You got to watch it. What happened? Did you pick up on the powers that are at play through this passage? It's almost like a bomb has gone off in Jerusalem. Do you see that in verse 4? Now, those who were, who were scattered went about preaching the word. That scattering, Luke, the writer of Acts, picks his word very carefully. That scattering is not like an IED tossing lifeless debris to the wind. It's more like the wind scattering life-giving seeds everywhere. It's a little bit like our English word disseminated. Seeds are tucked into this scattering And the key player kicking up the dust and doing the scattering is Saul. And so as he ravages the church, they flee. It's like their house is on fire. And so they take the most precious thing that they can think of with them, the life-giving news of Jesus Christ. They're not refugees on the run. Now, they're ambassadors on parade. They're ambassadors on triumphant procession. One commentator, G. Campbell Morgan, writes that the one thing persecution can never do, can never do, for a true witness is blur the vision of Christ or change the loyalty of his witness to him. Persecuted and driven out, Christ yet held his throne in them and secured their loyalty, for he never parted company with them. How could he say that? They're persecuted, but they're not abandoned. How so? His spirit was in them. His spirit was in them. And so Stephen was loyal as he faced his death, and Philip is loyal as he runs for his life. God's Spirit empowers them both. So let's ask ourselves, how would we react if if God's good plan permitted a painful disruption in our lives? Maybe even a dislocation in our routines. Interest rates spike so high that we've got to sell our home and find something else. Um, We get sick and land in the hospital. We get old and land in the retirement home. Now, in my short time at Cornerstone, I've I've been able to watch two dear brothers go through this kind of dislocation. You know, they could be saying, as their life changes radically, where is God? How can this be a good plan at all? But no, they're leaning in. They're leaning into this. This hardship, That their crossing is a catalyst, accelerating their allegiance to him. Even this, they see, is right on plan. 
One of them in the hospital reminded me of this old hymn. Some of you will recognize it. Living for Jesus, a life that is true. Striving to please him in all that I do. Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. This is the pathway of blessing for me. Oh, Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to thee. For thou, in thy atonement, didst give thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My heart I give henceforth to live, O Christ, for thee alone. Some of you hummed that as I was saying the words. You're familiar with that. Whether you're familiar with those words or not, could you sing that from a hospital bed? Could you sing that from prison? The Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were scattered like seeds. And as Philip runs for Samaria, he's not ducking for cover. He's, he's proclaiming Jesus. He's preaching Jesus openly. And watch what happens as the good news of Jesus breaks ground there. First of all, it, it displaces lesser powers. It displaces lesser powers. Did you watch Philip? He's doing miracles. He's busy. These signs are, are clear that God is at work through him. The miraculous signs cause the crowds to sit up and take notice. They, they tune in to the good things that Jesus is saying, uh, that Philip is saying about Jesus. What is it that's grabbing their attention? Well, look in verse 7. Demons are forcibly expelled so that they shriek. Lifeless legs budge with strength and life again. By whose power? And best of all, in verse 12, blind hearts are opened to believe, to believe the good news. Did you see that? The Samaritan city there, men and women believe and are baptized, demonstrating that their guilt is gone, that Jesus is now their life by whose greater power? No wonder that verse 8 says, there was much joy in that city. Much, I think that's an understatement. Much joy. Why is that? Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you remember when God did that for you? Do you remember what it felt like to be sprung free from Satan, from yourself, and from your sin? Do you remember maybe what your first breath of fresh air felt like as a new believer? How much clearer and brighter and more alive everything looked? Some of you do. You've told me so. Well, you can, write, you can wrap that newness in one word. Joy. Much joy. But, says verse 9, Contrast that impact that the gospel has made on the men and women in the Samaritan city with the little dent that it makes on Simon. Simon is the town sorcerer. He's a local witch doctor. He loved making people twitch with awe 
and with fear. He's hooked on selfish ambition. He's addicted to accolades. Do you see that in verse 10? This man, they all used to say, this man is the power of God that, that is called great. But even he, even he, verse 13, believes, is baptized, and continues with Philip. The question is, is it for real? Is Simon for real? It, it seems as you read through that paragraph that Simon is more captivated by the cool tricks that Philip is doing than he is truly taken by the Lord Jesus. And that comes clear when in verse 19, he offers Peter and John money as if to buy a share in the rights to distribute the Holy Spirit. Really, Simon? Really? Do you really think that God's Spirit is no more than a commodity to tap into and to broker? You think He's no more than just a magic wand to wave however you want? No. Peter blasts him. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. What was Simon's massive heart problem? Is it possible that it could be ours as well? It was idolatry. Something else took the top spot in his soul that only God should have. Greed was luring his heart and ruling his soul, even though the good news of Jesus and the free gift of God's Spirit was right there, ready and powerful enough to dislodge it, to displace it. And so it comes as a good warning for us, doesn't it? What lesser power vies for the top spot in your heart and mine? Is it your tendency to please people? To look good to everybody? Is it a corrosive habit? Maybe that passion that keeps you scrolling back online? Is it your spouse or your boss or your friend who keeps pressuring you to bend the truth or to lower your standards or to muzzle your love for Jesus? What is that lesser power that tries to lure you under its rule? Whatever it is, whatever it might be, greater is he that is in you. Say that with me. Greater is he that is in than any lesser power, than any lesser affection, than any lure. God's Spirit is in you to stoke your highest affection for Jesus and expel the destructive ones. When the good news of Jesus broke new ground in Samaria, anytime it does, it displaces lesser powers. It does more than that. It also creates a new community. It creates a new community. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem, at the epicenter, that where it all started from, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
You know, the, the echoes of Samaria's joy hit as far away as Jerusalem, and they go, what? Really? Can God really be working on the other side of the tracks like that? Impossible. And so they send Peter and John to check it out. But something in that visit, something in those verses that we just read, sh- should strike you as odd. Do you see it? Why does the Spirit come on the Samaritans only after Peter and John arrive? Not, why, not when they believe, not when they receive the good news. Why after? Why the delay? If you know your New Testament, you know that normally the Holy Spirit indwells believers at the time of their conversion. They trust in Christ. He indwells the believer. He makes his home in all those he regenerates. He's the deposit guaranteeing that God will finish what he starts in every believer. And so the Apostle Paul makes this clear in Romans 8 verse 9 when he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And here's the clincher. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Hmm. There is no such thing as a spiritless Christian. No Christian is devoid of God's Spirit. He comes to dwell in every believer at the point of of conversion. And so why not here? Why is it so different here? Why not in Samaria, where the Spirit comes after John and Peter show up? Remember how the boundary line between Judea and Samaria was barricaded by centuries of bad blood? They were hostile to each other. To the average Jew, it was implausible, no, unthinkable that there could ever be any such thing as a good Samaritan. How could it be that the good news of God's rescue would ever cross into that border? That's impossible. But it was. It was. It was penetrating this boundary too. And to prove it, God was orchestrating a -a one-of-a-kind Samaritan Pentecost as if to say, you think this barrier is impassable? My rescue work, yes, even here, is meant to create one new community. One. Not two. Not two parallel ones. Not two splintered ones. One redeemed humanity. One resplendent bride. So 1 Corinthians 12 13 puts it like this. This is beautiful. For in one spirit, we were all baptized. How many? All. We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks. Ethnicity is no issue. Slaves or free. Social status is no issue. And all, all were made to drink of one spirit. That is stunning. That is beautiful. You think of it. Only God can take a dissonant people from all over the globe, those that only ever could stomach country and western music, those that only could ever love reggae or opera or yodeling, and only God could ever take us and retune us so that our one joy and our highest praise is Jesus. 
Only God's Spirit can do that in us. That's what God was putting on display in Samaria. God's Spirit is our glue. In Him, we are one. Regardless of what's splintered us in the past. But Cornerstone, is that true? Is that true of us? God is giving us the privilege of living in an increasingly darkening world. It's a privilege. Increasing hostility. Increasing splintering. Increasing loneliness. Do we... Do we show that God's love has been poured into our hearts by his spirit so that as one, we cry out, Abba, you are our father. You belong to us. We belong to you. We belong. Do you see how stunning and winsome this kind of belonging is to our desperately lonely world? It is. When the, when the good news of Jesus breaks new ground, it creates one whole new community. And there's nothing like the church of Jesus Christ on the planet. One. And that's because, thirdly, it buries old hostilities. What happens when the good news of Jesus penetrates new ground? It buries old hostilities. That bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews had boiled for centuries. I think it might have been 10 centuries that it began with. The Samaritans were a racial and a religious mashup. A little like today's Christian cults might do, the Samaritans had this propensity to cling to just enough Bible spun their way and to throw in a few pinches of paganism as well. That's why Simon had such a, a, a hold on them. So to the Jew, they were idolatrous half-breeds. They were nothing more than ethnically polluted, religiously confused, morally debased people. Have nothing to do with them. No decent Jew traveling from Galilee up north to Judea down south would ever soil his soul by stepping foot in Samaria. In fact, you'll remember, they'd add miles to their journey and take the long way around instead. Not going there. There was one time, though, several times Jesus did it. One time that it's recorded in Luke 9, Jesus decided to travel through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And he sent some men ahead to book their B&B. When the Samaritans found out that he was on his way to Jerusalem, they flipped the sign on their hotel door, closed. We're closed. James and John saw that. Luke chapter 9, verse 20, 54. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Those rejects, what they deserve is your rejection, God, don't they? Well, who is it, I ask you, that God propelled out of Jerusalem to bring the good news of Jesus to these rejects? Another reject. A Greek-speaking misfit. And so one commentator writes, God, in his providence, in his good sovereignty, used as their evangelist, handpicked the Hellenist Philip, the Greek-speaking 
Philip, who shared their fate of being rejected at Jerusalem, and the Samaritans received him and accepted their message. God is genius. He's right on plan. And who else, I ask you, did God use to authenticate the fact that all rejects really are welcome into his rescue plan? Well, John, the very guy who said, Lord, I think we ought to nuke them, don't you? Do you think that John changed his mind? Well, we have an indica- a huge indication that he does. Look at verse 25 there. John is singing a totally different tune now. As he heads back to Jerusalem, he is preaching the gospel to many villages of who? Of the Samaritans. They're in. They're welcome. Hostilities are buried. Do you think John was sold on that? The better question is, are we sold on that good plan of God's? Can you imagine someday soon when by God's good plan, he launches you from your home, maybe propelled by some pain, maybe by some difficulty, some dislocation, and he makes you face hostility and rejection, and some of you already are in your families Can you imagine a day when he does that on purpose, by his good purpose, and yet he allows you to take the most precious thing that you own with you, the good news of Jesus, to discover that his spirit is already gloriously at work through your faithful witness in a way that warmly welcomes hostiles home, right on plan. Are you sold on God's good plan? Three years ago, my friend Matthew came to visit us at church. Matthew was uh, the fellow that had gotten us into the 30-day prayer challenge. Some of you have done it before, praying for the Muslim world during the month of Ramadan. And so he'd, he'd do this. It'll be good for your church. It'll be good to see God working. And so we've been doing it for a few years. On this visit, this Sunday... I wanted my friend Matthew to see something of what God had done in answer to our praying. I said, come over here. I want you to meet my brother, Fateh. Fateh and his family are former Sunni Muslims from Syria. They now worship and serve Jesus together with us here. And I want you to, I want you to meet my sister, Fereshte. Fereshte and her family are former Shia Muslims. From the country of Iran, they, the family, and she now worship and serve Jesus with us. Matthew couldn't speak. His eyes brimmed with tears, and it was as if to say, do you understand the magnitude of this? Do you understand the ancient hostilities that should be here? They should be at each other's throats. This is what drives suicide bombers to each other's sides. This is what propelled the Iran-Iraq war. But no, it was bigger than that for Matthew. Steve, he said, I was just sharing Jesus this week with a Muslim friend, and I wish he were here because he told me, if you can show me a place where a Sunni and a Shia are worshiping God together, I will worship that God. That God 
is our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his spirit displaces lesser powers, creates a whole new community, and buries hostilities forever. Do you love him? Do you trust him? Do you know him? Are you sold on his plan for you? Let's pray. And so as one, Lord, we respond to you. We respond to what you have told us this morning with Philip as our example. We own no other master. Our hearts shall be your throne. Our hearts we give henceforth to live, O Christ, for you alone. That's the cry of our hearts, Lord. Make it true. Make it the reality in our future, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.